Well, for any of you who grew up with maybe more of a liturgical background, maybe Lutheran, some of you might have grown up Anglican, some perhaps Roman Catholic, with this Lord's Day we enter what's typically called Passion Week. In some traditions it's called Holy Week as well. But that word passion means one thing in, in English, but it comes from a Greek word, Pascha. Some of you might be making that this week. Pascha, the loaf of bread, the Easter bread. Um, but it's the word, the Greek word actually is Pasco or Pasgain. And that's where we get the word passion from. And it basically just means suffering. It's the week where we are reminded of our Lord's suffering. It's the week in which Christ suffered and died. And it ends, of course, the Lord brings us back next Sunday. We'll celebrate Resurrection Sunday. But it all starts today with Palm Sunday. And Todd read the account from Matthew's Gospel just a few minutes ago. It marks the day when Jesus made his way into Jerusalem. And in a fulfillment of prophecy, he comes in uh, riding in on a colt. And there's all the crowds lined up on each side of, of the dusty road into Jerusalem. And a number of them are waving palm branches and they're shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's, it's the kind of entrance and the kind of reception reserved for a conquering king. Lots of crowds, palm branches. Yet we know that this scene is not really a royal procession. It's a picture of a solitary, humble figure mounted on a colt. Now Jesus would indeed come as a king. He will come as a king. This time he'll be riding on a white horse. And he was a king, an expectant king at least, for the crowds that were waving their branches. Just not quite in the way that they expected because five days later he would be killed. But right at the end of that account that Todd read in Matthew 21 verse 10 it says, When he entered Jerusalem the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? Who is this? Jesus incited the people. He, he obviously evoked a reaction but they didn't quite know who he was. The question in their minds was, who is this really? Well, that question has been asked for centuries, right up to this day. And, and uh, I just saw something just earlier this week. I'm likely a little bit late on this, but I noticed that CNN is doing, uh, I think it's actually maybe a series or a mini-series of some kind, called Finding Jesus. Now, I haven't seen any of it. Any of you? Watch this? No? Okay, nobody watches CNN. Everyone's on Fox News. <laughs> but it's, I think it goes, happens on Sunday nights at 9 o'clock or something like that. Um, it's got lots of interesting sounding episodes. Um, I would call them speculations just by the title uh, of, of these episodes. And, uh, and, and on the website, it's actually quite a fun website, they actually have a quiz called How Well Do You Know Jesus? That's kind of the same question as Matthew 21, verse 10, isn't it? Who is this? Who is this really? When I did the quiz, quiz it was on out of 10, I think, and I got a nice high mark, and they said, you should have been an expert on the show. <laughs> I would have been happy to do that, but the questions really aren't that hard. As Christians, we could make a case that this is the most important question ever asked. Who is this? There are, there are a lot of questions where you can afford to get an answer wrong, whether it's on a test or just an opinion poll or an online quiz. 
It might have some effect, but either it doesn't really matter in the long run or you'll get another chance at some point to answer it differently. But when it comes to identifying Jesus, people have to get that one right. It has long-term, eternal consequences. Just like Jesus came into Jerusalem where his very presence confronted the people of that city, so Jesus comes into your world and confronts you with his presence. You have to know who he is. But this is not just an identity issue or a recognition issue. You actually have to know how he relates to you. It's not just facts about Jesus. What does he mean to you? Who is he to you? This is a personal application issue. Jesus, the historical figure, was a historical figure back in the first century, but he was also the eternal son of God. This Jesus, this historical figure, comes into your personal space and asks, do you know me? How will you respond to me? Will you Receive me, or will you reject me? But if you do respond by receiving him, and I pray all of you have, he actually stays in your personal space. And you're glad he does, because what you find in Jesus is compassion, and understanding, and help, and mercy, and grace. When Jesus came into Jerusalem on that colt, the the crowds were, were praising him as someone who would save him. Now, they weren't too clear on how they were going to get saved and from what. They, they thought, actually, that Jesus would save them from the Romans, from Roman rule. That he would come in and be the king of the Jewish people and wipe out the Romans. That's what they thought he would save them from, rather than saving them from their sins. But whatever it was, they cried out, Hosanna, which means, oh, save. They shouted, blessed is he who comes and saves. They identified Jesus as a savior of some sort. And they definitely had that part right. He would come to save his people. Only through suffering, through sacrifice, through atonement. But Jesus is much more than even that. And so we want to look into Hebrews chapter 4, just three verses today, verses 14 to 16. And when we see what that passage tells us about Jesus, I trust we will leave here today shouting in our hearts, blessed is he who saves us, just as those people did, but also blessed is he who sympathizes with us. Look at chapter 4, verse 14 of this letter to the Hebrews that's inspired by God. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So great verses. May God apply these great truths and press them into our hearts. So you see that the who is this question? 
talking about Jesus, gets an answer right here in Hebrews 4, doesn't it? And this is a most encouraging passage for us today and this week as we think about our Savior and as we reflect upon who he is and what he did, past tense, and on what he does, present tense. In fact, at, usually at the beginning of the week when I start my study, I usually write out the whole passage on, on some graph paper and diagram things and move some things over to the right just so I can see the, the flow of the passage. And after I wrote this one out this week, the first thing I put at the bottom of this sheet was just three letters, W-O-W. Wow. This really is an amazing glimpse at what Jesus means for us, not only in saving us, but in his continuing care and compassion for us. The exalted and the majestic Jesus actually identifies with us, and he understands us. He, he grants us exactly what we need at exactly the right time. He is gracious in his care and in his compassion. He is most worthy to be worshipped. Now I know some of you might be here for the first time, so just let you know that as a church we've been making our way through this letter to the Hebrews verse by verse. But this particular passage shows up in the letter really at just the right time. If you just move your eye up a little bit to the verse before this, you'll see actually that the two verses right before this, this talk about the fact that our, our plight as humans, our, our predicament, is actually quite daunting and fearful. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, in commenting on this passage says, first the apostle terrifies us, and then he comforts us. Those first verses, I'm talking about verses 12 and 13, evoke a sense of fear, because they tell us that we can't hide from God. We can't play hide-and-seek with God. There, there will never be a time where he won't find us. There's actually never a time when he doesn't even see where we went and hid. <laughs> never a time when he doesn't see us, and he sees right into us. The, his word exposes all the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. In verse 13, all of our hearts are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And hopefully the reality of that situation makes us turn to God in repentance and, and to turn to Jesus Christ's perfections. Because we certainly don't have any. We want to turn towards him and his sacrifice on our behalf. And so we, we do have to see the desperation of our predicament without Christ. But we can't stay there. That reality should drive us to Christ. And, and so verse 14 makes sort of an about face to also show us what God has given us in the person of Jesus Christ. This was written to encourage these people who converted from Judaism to Christianity, these Hebrews. And it's written to encourage us today. It shows us the utter transcendence and weightiness and gravity of Jesus. But even though it's true that Jesus is transcendent and so far above us, it's also true that he's near to us. And that he actually identifies with us, that he sympathizes with us, that he feels what we feel. And we'll see all of that in these three incredible verses. And throughout this passage, there's sort of an interplay between who Jesus is and, and what it means for us. You'll see those two let us commands there at the end of verse 14. We saw those earlier in chapter 4 as well. Let us hold fast. 
there at the end of verse 14, and at the beginning of verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near. But all around those two, let's call them invitations for us, are the reasons that we are called to do that and, and how we are enabled to even do that. It's, it, it's talking about who Jesus is for us. So the first exhortation is to hold fast to our confession. This has already been a repeated plea in the first four chapters. By now we know that the people to whom this was written were, were maybe teetering a little bit in their faith. They were under the threat of persecution. Uh, this was a, a Hebrew community and there was a pressure to go back to the old system of, of sacrifices and law keeping and such. In short, the trials and pressures for these people were discouraging. There were times where they might have been at the place where they just wanted to throw in the towel on, on this whole Christianity thing. This is what the Christian life is all about? Well, I'm not sure that I can do it. It's too hard. It's into that kind of attitude, that kind of situation, and for that reason that this letter is written. And the author comes and says over and over again, hold fast to Jesus. Hang on tight. Trust him. Don't stop believing. No matter what's going on in your life, you, you, you might waver, but make sure you hold fast. We can tend toward that same kind of discouragement. We've got those same kinds of pressures. When we're right in the middle of it, and you can fill in the blank on what that it is, it's hard to believe God's promises. A lot of you might be in deep waters right now. And so Hebrews, just, just see it as a lifeboat. And see the life preserver as, that gets thrown out to you as Jesus. This letter from God to you promises not only that he'll save you, but that he'll take you through the deep waters to a place of safety. He wants you to hold fast to Christ. Later on in chapter 6, he's going to be called an anchor. Saying about that a little bit today. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to your confession that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord through the hard times, through the temptations that you face. He's Lord through the good times. That's your confession. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. Keep reminding yourself of that and hold fast to Christ. Why should you do that? Who is he? Well, it's going to tell us here. It's not just some self-generated effort. He enables us to do this. What do we have in Jesus? We can hold fast because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Now, the high priest would have been very familiar to Jews. In the Old Testament, priests were, I guess we would call them today, the middlemen, the mediators between God and the people of God. They, the priests would bring the sacrifice, representing the people's sacrifice for their sins, to the priest. And then the priest, it, only the priest, would be able to present that sacrifice to God on the altar. And they would do that for all kinds of sacrifices all the time. But one time every year was the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest would take the animal sacrifice, the, the sin offering, and he'd go from the outer court of the tabernacle, which would later become the temple, where the altar was, and then he'd pass through a door or a curtain, and he'd go into the holy place. And then he'd go through another door and go into the holy of holies. Only he could go in there, only one time of the year, and that place represented God's presence. 
throughout this process, he had to sacrifice for the people, but not only for the people, also for himself, because every priest was a sinner as well. And we'll see more on that in the next chapter, especially there in verses uh, 2 and 3. But Jesus is called the great high priest. There was no other priest in the Old Testament, even Aaron himself, who was called the great high priest. And I think all that means is that he's unique. Jesus is the unique high priest. He does the same work. He, he carries our sins to the Father, but he's the great and unique high priest because he became the sacrifice itself. He's the great and unique high priest because unlike the high priest, he was not a sinner. He's the great and unique high priest because he didn't just pass through the outer courts and into the holy place. Jesus actually, it says here, passed through the heavens. He was not bound to earth like the high priest was, who would disappear but then come back out again and then go through the same thing every year. Jesus came to earth. He lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended to the Father, he passed through the heavens. And he's not with us on this earth right now, in person, in his incarnate form. In one sense, his work is completed. He said that on the cross, right? It is finished. But in another sense, he is still our great high priest. Homer Kent wrote that his presence absence from view is no disadvantage. You know, it's not that we had a great high priest. It says here we, we have a great high priest. He's active on our behalf right now, doing his high priestly work. We'll see that in verse 15. But Jesus passed through the heavens. Again, it points to his uniqueness, but it also points to his transcendence. He is altogether different from the human high priest and from humanity in general. He is exalted far above us. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he's entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He is separated from us, but in passing through the heavens and into heaven itself, our great high priest brings us to God. And because of all that Jesus is, let us hold fast to our confession. This gives us every reason to hold fast to our confession, to keep going, even though the earthly circumstances sometimes seem unbearable. Hang on to your great high priest, the one who has passed through the heavens. Now you might be thinking, wow, Jesus really is altogether different from us. He is so far removed from us. And if he's so far removed from us, how could he ever understand how I feel? Could the one who has passed through the heavens really understand me? Could he know what's in my heart? Well, I think the author of Hebrews thought that we might think that. He anticipated that, and so he makes sure to tell us that not only is Jesus the transcendent, majestic God who has passed through the heavens, Jesus is also fully human. Jesus is far above us, yes, but look at the second let us command in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. How can he say that? How how can we draw near to this almighty transcendent God the Father, God the Son? 
How can we do that when Jesus is, is spatially separated, us from, separated from us by the sky? Well, the answer is back in verse 15. We can draw near because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is where my wow came from. Do you think that because Jesus is up in heaven at the right hand of the Father, he could not possibly understand what you are going through? Do you think Jesus could not possibly understand the depth of your despair? That he could not possibly understand your frailties and your weaknesses? Do you think Jesus could not possibly understand the temptations and the pressures that you face every single day? Well, this paints a different picture, doesn't it? You can draw near to God. He is far above, but he is not far away. Did you hear that? He is far above, but he is not far away. He is not so far removed from us that he doesn't understand what we are going through. In fact, he knows exactly what we're going through. The writer here wants to assure us that Jesus is God, but he's also very much human. He became one of us, and because he became one of us, he also knows us intimately. We can approach God. What does it say here? We should approach him in a, you know, in a, in a cowering kind of demeanor and, and then very quietly and, and very cautiously and carefully ask him if we can enter into his presence and then, and, and then very bashfully and fearfully sort of tell him our needs if he really wants to hear them and, and our struggles and our temptations. Is, is that what this says? No. It says there that we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, with a sense of freedom. Why? How? We can come to the throne of grace confidently only because we come to God's throne through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Here we come to the question again. And like I said, the answer is there in verse 15. He puts it here in a a double negative. We do not have a high priest who is unable to to sympathize with our weaknesses. I think he probably said it that way because the people he's writing to were starting to think that Jesus was unable to understand humanity. He's saying no. In fact, it's the very opposite. We do have a high priest, even though he has passed through the heavens, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Tom Schreiner says that Jesus is not just our majestic high priest, he's also our tender high priest. Hear that. Not only our majestic high priest, he's also our tender high priest. He truly is our great high priest. But it's not just feelings of tenderness and sympathy and compassion and understanding. Jesus actually helps us get through them. He doesn't just have feelings for us. He's actually our helper. And he can do that because he actually suffered. As a human, just like you suffer with the temptations and the trials and and the testings of life. Hebrews 2.18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is able to sympathize with your weaknesses. Weaknesses here, I think, is just talking about our frailties, the kind of groanings that are part of our lives in the presence of sin. They're not sins, but they are those moral weaknesses that could bring us to the point where we do sin. 
His weaknesses are different for everyone. When one person is weak when it comes to lust, that could lead to pornography. Another person is weak when it comes to money, that could lead to greed or, or fraud or, or stealing. Where one person is weak when it comes to food, that could lead to gluttony. Another person is weak when it comes to being maybe inconvenienced, which could lead to anger and fury. This says that Jesus is able to sympathize with those weaknesses. In his humanity, he understands. And he understands because in every respect he has been tempted as we are, with one exception. This verse has given birth to all manner of speculation. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, and so that makes people ask, okay, so, so was it possible for Jesus to sin? And if the answer is no, then the next question is, well, if that's true, then was he really tempted? Well, I'm going to do the old dodge <laughs> to that question. You can commiserate about that around lunch table today. For one thing, it's one of those conundrums that can just go around and around and around. But for another thing, that's not the point of this verse. Jesus, it says here, was tempted. It says that right here. And we know that from when he was in the desert for 40 days and nights, just for one example, where he was tempted by the devil. But this says that he was tempted in every respect as we are. I like how Ligon Duncan deals with this line. He says this, quote, The author of Hebrews is not just saying, draw near to God because God knows what it's like to be human because he created humans. Now that's true, but he says more than that. He doesn't even say, draw near to God because God knows everything. He, he, he knows the sin that you're struggling with. Rather, he says, draw near to God, because when God sent his son into this world, he appointed for his son to be fully human like you. And so he knows what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to face your temptations. And so when you come to him and you admit to him what you're afraid to admit to anyone else, you're not going to face a sneer. You're not going to face condescension kind of condescension that says, you worm, how could you possibly struggle with that? No, you're going to hear, I understand that. I was tempted that way too. End quote. Jesus understands. Jesus was actually tempted in ways that we won't ever understand. He faced the full range of temptations and so he understands and sympathizes with yours. The only difference is that Jesus never surrendered to the temptations. He was without sin. And that has huge implications for why he could be our savior and our substitute. He was the perfect lamb of God. But the point here in Hebrews 4 is that that's the only way that he's different. But in every other way, he is like you. He is therefore intimately acquainted with your weaknesses, and he can uniquely sympathize with you. So, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. It's really a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's saying, come into God's presence. Because of Jesus, you can actually draw near to God. And when you come to God, his 
throne is a throne of grace. Notice the transition in this, just these few, very few verses. It goes from a place of accountability and judgment in verse 13 to a throne of grace in verse 16. And look at what happens when you draw near to God's presence. In your weakness, in your distress, in your struggle with weakness, it says here that you'll receive something there. And you'll find something there. You're going to receive mercy. God will not give you what you do deserve. Right? That's some way the way mercy is defined. And you'll find grace to help in time of need. He, he will give you what you do not deserve. That's quite something for us who are believers. And it's there to help us in our time of need. This also, also has implications if you're here today and you're not a Christian, though. If you come into the presence of God through our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, he, he promises to give you grace and mercy and to help you in time of need. But if you come into God's presence without Jesus, you'll have to face the very opposite. You'll have to face God's wrath. You will face judgment, and you will receive the just penalty for your sins. And we are all sinners. So, turn away from your sins. Ask for forgiveness. Put your faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we just sang about. The one who committed no sin. And then you'll be able to come to the throne of grace where you will receive mercy and you will find grace there. For us who are in Christ, these verses are immensely comforting. Let's face it, we all struggle deeply with one thing or another. We, we know that our lives aren't as they should be. We are weak. We are frequently beaten down by our circumstances, by our own struggles with the flesh, by, by the constant onslaught of temptations that we face. And we probably have times when we wonder whether God really cares that we suffer with those kinds of things. Well, if you get to that place, here's where you need to land, fellow Christian, fellow pilgrim, as we try to make our way through this life into the promised land. This is where we meet our great high priest, the Son of God. This is where you meet someone who knows what it was like to be human yet without sin. This is where we meet someone who is both transcendent and tender. This is where our great high priest brings us to the throne of grace where we find help for our pilgrimage in the form of mercy and grace to help right at the opportune time, right in our time of need. So Christian, hold fast to your confession and draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Let's bow together in prayer.